Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 40, Tsar Alexander I of Russia, Napoleon's most powerful foe. We have a special guest once again. We have our good friend, Alexander Mika Baritze from LSU Shreveport. Say hello, Alex. Hello, hello. Thank you. Yeah, hey, thanks for coming on. I guess I'm doing something right that you, you've invited me back. <laughs> I invite you back because I can pronounce your name well now. So. <laughs> and you're doing it so well. Thank, thank you, buddy. Yeah, I'm getting better at it. Getting better at it. Um, I, Alexander, um, for the, my listeners, he's been on the show before. We did uh, uh, an episode on uh, Barclay de Tolle and Gattusov. And today I thought it'd be interesting. This is uh, not necessarily a general but we're going to dive into Tsar Alexander, who's a very interesting man in his own right, correct? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I think one of the most complex characters of, uh, of this entire period, uh, The Sphinx of the North, is I think one of his biographers uh, titled the book. Yep. So, uh, and a, a, a very interesting character. And in terms of personal growth, I feel like he, he was one of the, the few characters who really grew and enhanced his reputation as the years went on. Absolutely. Um, I think he, I mean, the hard way, but he learned the lessons, um, at least the key lessons. Right. And ultimately, he is the, the one who triumphs over Napoleon. Uh, although for a long time there, it, it looked like it would be the other way around. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, let's dive in. Can you kind of give us a brief sketch of what Alexander's life was growing up? When he was born in 1777, in, on December 20, uh, 23rd, um, he was born into a family that was quite dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. uh, a family that already has gone through um, a, a turmoil or two, including uh, uh, the, the murder or the, uh, the assassination of the previous emperor, Peter mm -hmm. III, the father mm -hmm. of Paul, the grandfather of, um, of Alexander himself. And I think that event, the, the fact that the legitimate emperor was overthrown and replaced by uh, uh, his wife, who had barely any legitimate claims to the power, but was effectively put on the throne by, by the sheer force, um, uh, military force led by some of her lovers, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of course, will overshadow many of the things that will happen. And one mm -hmm. of the interesting things was that Paul... Um, will kind of bear grudge against his wife, uh, his his mother. So mm -hmm. the relationship between Paul and Catherine would remain tense throughout their life. Mm -hmm. Partly it is because of Paul's own character, excess, uh, kind of eccentricity, uh, the physical resemblance to his father continued to irritate Catherine. So every time she looked at him, she kind of remembered her own husband and by all accounts, Peter was a jackass, right? <laughs> uh, especially if you read Catherine's memoirs, which are so serving, but nonetheless, um, right. uh, you know, having a young, beautiful wife and not being uh, interested in her certainly could not but rub <laughs> your wife the wrong way. Yeah. In um, any ways, um, so what happens then is that uh, the Russian court, the Russian nobility is going to split into two centers, mm -hmm. kind of power centers. One is in, in St. Petersburg around the Catherines and, and it is that kind of uh, 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 libertine 
uh, open, vivacious right. kind of way of life. And then there is a, a rural estate uh, near St. Petersburg called Gatchina. Mm -hmm. And that's where Paul lives. And at Gatchina, Paul established a ducal court because he's the Grand Duke uh, of mm -hmm. the Russian Empire. And it is a world away from the free-willing uh, court of St. Petersburg. Right. Gatchina is far more austere environment. It is more, uh, I would say, pedantic, yeah. more militaristic, more oppressive. And here at Gatchina, Paul, in many respects, cultivates the memory of his father, who was effectively murdered by his mother. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and here he he shares his father's admiration for all things Prussian. Gatchina becomes kind of famous for its Prussomania, Prussian-style um, troops that, are, uh, that Paul establishes here, troops that are equipped, clothed, and drilled in Prussian manner. The court itself is kind of organized in Prussian manner. And therefore, we have two different courts. Right. And this young boy, Alexander, is now growing split between his grandmother right. and his father. And, and so when I look at him, I see... In many respects, a tragic figure who has to choose which role he performs. Right. There is one role he needs to perform when he's with his father, and a different kind of mask that he puts on when he's with his grand uh, with his grandmother. Yeah. And he keeps shuttling back and forth. That's so interesting because he, he, like you said, he he went from one court where it was freewheeling and open ideas to another court where it was very conservative and stern and militaristic. You don't want to be a teenager, you know, 14, 15 year old boy and, and kind of grappling with all of these political matters. And, and yet Alexander would have, would have had to. And also in his teenage years, which I think is interesting is he got married at, at a very young age, correct? He did though. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily unusual. Um, right. Um, you know, you, you can find similar kind of experiences in um, or, uh, happenings in early eras, you know, not the last, but let's say Peter the Great was also married a young, yeah. marriage didn't work out. But here in this case, Alexander's case, um, uh, I think he was 15 years old um, Correct. Uh, when he's, uh, be, uh, he's married uh, Princess Louise of Baden. Uh, now, in, in Russian society, uh, whenever uh, a, uh, a member of the uh, royal family married outside, right, uh, a, a married foreigner, the foreigner was expected to convert to Eastern Orthodoxy and, and change her name. Mm -hmm. So same, you know, that well, that's what happened with uh, Empress Catherine herself, uh, right? She she was actually German, uh, German raised yeah. in, in, in German, for, in, yeah. she belonged to Anhalt Zerf's family. And when she came to Russia, she converted, took the name of Catherine. So mm -hmm. now this is what happens to 14-year-old uh, Louise of Baden, who converts and becomes Elizabeth um, Alexeyevna. Uh, and so yeah. uh, the marriage, I would say it was it it it, it has its ups and downs, like all marriages, I guess. Right. Um, right. Uh, I would you know Alexander was not necessarily the most uh, loyal of husbands. The, the um, couple will go on to to have uh, uh, children, um, although no no male offspring will be produced from this marriage. Um, and um, Alexander will also have kind of uh, shenanigans on, on the side. Um, right. but, 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 you know, the, the couple was 
tender and caring for each other. I've read Elizabeth's letters and they're all full of kind of worry and concern for her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, the marriage worked for both sides. Just moving on the story, though, he, he got married in 1793. And then three years later, Catherine dies and Paul takes over as czar with Alexander Tsarevich. Um, so this could only complicate, you know, Alex and his dad's relationship, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, the <laughs> complicate uh, is, is a good word. Uh, uh, November, in, the, in, in mid-November 1796, uh, everyone knew that Catherine had uh, uh, kind of struggled with poor health. Uh, even before she drew her last breath, however, um, Paul rushed <laughs> rushed to the um, to the imperial court. I bet and, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the uh, story goes that he uh, rummaged through his her through her papers mm-hmm. and allegedly found the, the documents that were designed to uh, remove him from succession. So had them disposed of, and then effectively became the emperor mm. well i have again as, as hard of a character as paul is i cannot but feel bad for him because he's been waiting for this moment for over 30 years right very patiently so you cannot you can't imagine hating somebody and waiting for them to die and them not dying for <laughs> for 30 years right? yeah yeah and, um, and, and now is his time like he probably and he does he has reforms in mind he has things he wants to do as czar and I, he's probably very excited yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in many respects, Paul felt like a stranger in his own country because he despised many of the things that Catherine has done in the preceding three decades. Mm-hmm. I don't believe he's the mad czar. That's a mad black legend that is created by Catherine and her supporters later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe he's a mentally deranged brute. But there are a lot of interesting things about him. Right. He's if you read the writings of Nikolai Sablukov, very interesting guy, later on uh, uh, went into exile uh, to to England and wrote his memoirs actually in English. Uh, so Sablukov, who knew Polk very well, uh, spoke of him in, in actually in very kind of kind terms. He describes him as a sincerely pious, really mm-hmm. benevolent, generous uh, hater of falsehoods, uh, always anxious to promote justice. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, not the view that most people, and certainly maybe the listeners have of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we usually kind of think of him as that ir- irrational brute right. uh, that, that was banned on, on, on crushing everything. But even those who liked him, like Sabulkov, do admit that Paul could be very impatient. Mm-hmm. And that impatience led to ill temper, which then uh, call, you know, led to certain transgressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one of the, I think, uh, flaws that Paul has is that he has a very clear sense of what Zardom is about, right? what that notion of imperial rule is about. Mm-hmm. And part of it for him is blind obedience to what he wants to do. Right. And whenever somebody pushes back, I mean, it really irritates and, and kind of angers him. Right. And in the the reforms that you talked about, right, the changes that he has in mind, they come fast and furious almost a, several hours after Catherine's death, almost overnight. Some of the changes that Paul did uh, were actually rational and important changes. 
mm-hmm. he understood, for example, that Pro- Russian army was kind of burdened with too many superfluous officers, too many mm-hmm. uh, generals. There are hundreds of generals for an army when you need to have just a few dozen. Mm-hmm. He believe, you know, he believes that the Russian nobles have abused their loopholes to enrich and can they, uh, 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 serve themselves. And so his early reforms are actually reforms that emphasize military professionalism, accountability, or things that I think we nowadays take for granted, right? Right. But at the time, the fact that Paul's kind of single-handedly dismisses hundreds of officers, eliminates mm-hmm. special privileges and loopholes, yep. strikes down the patronage networks that for a long time allowed nobles to abuse the system. All that was scandalous, right? right. And it and, and, exacerbated public uh, anxiety. Yeah, and it creates animosity amongst your officer corps. Absolutely, you. absolutely. Yeah. Especially yeah. those who are fired, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they find very little to like about Paul. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the the ones that are uh, held accountable, or the ones that are punished for their uh, transgressions. And Paul can be very exacting. In my biography of Kutuzov, I show that um, you know Kutuzov, as capable as he was, and as close as he was to Paul, could be. I mean, or, or kind of one day could be praised for doing something, and then hammered by Paul for doing something trivial. Right. One of the things, for example, that was that uh, Paul was a micromanager and he expected the senior generals to consult with him on every little minute thing Mm -hmm. Um, he did kind of double down on censorship he did uh, start kind of regulating theater and press more rigorously than ever and again that comes in the wake of kind of the the good days of of uh, of, uh, Catherine Um, and um, that meant that within very short period of time uh, Paul did alienate a, a, a lot of people. All right. Well, let's bring in then amongst this alienation and you know upsetting of the norms of Russia, the second coalition in our first discussion of Napoleon and the French entering the fray. So we're talking second coalition. You know, the French Revolution has been going on, gosh, almost 10 years now. And Paul decides to become involved with the Second Coalition. Um, the Russian decision to join the Second Coalition is is interesting because uh, the war um, that is now entering, you know, seventh year, um, is uh, not directly affecting Russian in uh, Russian territory or Russian interests. In fact, if anything, um, Russia took full advantage of the war, the revolutionary wars, to. Uh, further its own interest, uh, the the last Polish partition right, mm-hmm. uh, took place within the context of of these struggles against revolutionary Europe, uh, revolutionary France, and it's completed in 1795. Mm-hmm. But then a couple of uh, uh, important things happen. Um, one is that um, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt uh, claims the the order of Maltese knights. In Malta, yeah. Uh, the, and uh, the grand master of the Maltese knights was Paul, and he really uh, took that personally. Right? Mm-hmm. In fact, the order of, uh, 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 is, is displaced by, by the French. Um, then uh, he increasingly was looking kind of with concern um, at, at the uh, developments in, in Europe where he be- genuinely believes in, in kind of this notion that becomes a, one of the fundamental principles of conservative of legitimacy mm-hmm. 
and he believes that what French are doing is illegitimate. It's contrary to the kind of divinely blessed order of things, and that France need to be confronted. And, and he decides to join the coalition, uh, and he sends uh, probably the best uh, Russian general. Oh yeah. Of, of not just this time, probably ever. Uh, ever, yeah. Uh, Alexander Suvorov. Yeah. Uh, to command the uh, not just the Russian army, but he was chosen as generalissimo of the coalition force sent to uh, Italy. And that's an interesting choice in terms of the theater of war, because as your listeners remember, it, it, Italy was the very place where Napoleon cut his teeth, right? right. Napoleon established himself. Right. And now Kovorov is sent to undo what Napoleon has done. Yeah. And he does a great job of that, in fact. Oh, it's uh, a brilliant job. And that's, yeah. I think, um, he, my he friend, rolls uh, over. Yeah. yeah, he does very well. He beats several different French generals, and uh, everything's going great until he gets to uh, Switzerland and meets. Uh, well, his his vanguard meets Messina. But the Ancien regime, this old regime armies, were fully capable of confronting the French, and as 1799 shows, crushing them time and again. Suvorov is a brilliant general. He has a good army, both Russian and Austrian army. And with that army, he defeats some of the recognizable names on the French side. He starts with Scherer. He goes then to defeat MacDonald, Moreau, Mm -hmm. um, battles of Trebia, battle of 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 brilliant victories. um, That that allow the Allies to reclaim virtually entire Italian peninsula in the span of uh, four months. I mean, uh, it's really astonishing success. But the downside is that the Austrians didn't do as well in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Um, They scored some success, some victories, but ultimately they're confronted by Massena at Zurich Mm -hmm. and and, and, and are defeated, which prompts uh, the decision to send Suvorov instead of uh, invading South France uh, to Switzerland to shore up the coalition defenses there. Mm Uh, uh, equally important is the fact that Austrians and Russians don't see eye to eye. They Mm -hmm. have clear disagreements on the future of Italy. Paul wants to restore what he considers legitimate governments uh, in in Italy, while uh, Austrians were far more interesting and I would say self-serving in that, especially in places like Piedmont, where they were keen on aggrandizing themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of split between uh, um, uh, Austria and Russia means that Suvorov is diverted, sent across the uh, Alps, and ultimately, um, this is where you can you can we can get into nitpicking <laughs> whether he was defeated by uh, Masena or whether he uh, triumphantly marched across the mountains and made to safety. Right. <laughs> um, but ultimately, the Russian army is recalled uh, by right. Paul, who is absolutely disgusted by what has happened between him and Austrians. And with his withdrawal, the second coalition loses a crucial partner, uh, which will make it very uh, much, much harder for the coalition to prevail, prevail right. over the, uh, over the uh, French. So now not only are generals alienated, but it, it appears maybe to some in the military in the Russian military that they lost or, or didn't do as well as they should have done against the French in the Second Coalition. Absolutely. I think the the war of the Second Coalition 
contribute to a, a lot of animosity in, in, in the Russian officer corps. Paul himself also kind of contributed to this animosity through, um, again, doubling down on the reforms by right. uh, kind of creating a very austere, um, a very austere environment in, mm -hmm. in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. uh, which again, I you know to not to be the or, or, you know the dead horse again and again, but it, it it's a contrast right with the yeah. Catherine right. Yeah. And so anyone who lived, uh, uh, any nobleman who lived through the Catherine's time would have inadvertently right compared the harsh reality of 1800, 1801 living on the pole to a far more relaxed atmosphere of, of just four or five years earlier. Right. And, and that meant that a group of noblemen decided that they had enough and uh, began to conspire against Paul. Yeah, let's talk about that, because this is always the controversial part. And we'll get back to our protagonist now. How involved in, in you know, Alexander was famously accused by General Van Dam of, you know, I, you know, I may have surrendered, but at least I've never been implicated in killing my father. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. How involved was he? I've heard different things on this. I heard that he knew about it, but he told the plotters not to kill his dad, to just, you know, arrest him. Uh, others say that, oh, he was totally involved and wanted to kill his father. What happened in that 1801 assassination of Tsar Paul? We, we know quite a bit because okay. many of the participants wrote memoirs later on. And, and, and there's uh, documentation that allows us to, to look into the um, into the development of this conspiracy. Mm. Um, the, the key reason for conspiracy is this um, weight of the Tsar's authority, mm. authority that is applied very capriciously, arbitrarily. Mm. It's not that the nobles are complaining necessarily of the Tsar exercising his authority, but rather exercising it in unexpected, in arbitrary way, unpredictable way, which creates anxiety over one's own future. Um, I think the British ambassador, Charles Whitworth, um, kind of talked about the emperor uh, in a poll, literally not being in his senses on, on occasions. In, and, and that, I think, would contribute to this growing perception of madness. Although, as I said, uh, uh, it's, it's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happens is a group of officers rally around uh, individuals, senior individuals like uh, Peter von Palin, Nikita Panin, uh, and the Zubov brothers, mm -hmm. uh, as well as generals Benningson uh, later on, right? We've talked about, uh, I think, Benningson, and he becomes kind of an important figure in Alexander's own reign. Mm -hmm. um, and they agree that Paul needs to go. It, mm -hmm. And that it will be much better for the nation, for the empire, and certainly for all of them, if Alexander, this young Grand Duke, uh, it, it replaces his father. Mm -hmm. Remember, this was already been done before, right? Peter the right. Third had been removed from power and paved the way. Yeah, in Russian history, czar is being killed, and the, the word czar, even for Caesar, it's very Roman. Like you know, you, you become czar, but there's a very good chance you may get assassinated before you're. Your, your, you know, before your natural time of death. You know, is that is that an unfair criticism of Russian czardom? No, oh, in all 18th century certainly shows that czardom is not, um, is not kind of 
that uh, uh, absolute this uh, imperial institution that is unassailable. Right. That um, emperors could be removed, mm -hmm. um, and they but, you, you know they can be replaced um, overnight. We've seen yeah. that happening, for example, in seventeen forty. Mm -hmm. uh, with Elizabeth coming to power through a coup. Mm -hmm. We see that in 1762 with Catherine coming through a coup. Mm -hmm. And um, and now, effectively, in seventeen, uh, in 1801, yeah. increased number of people are asking, why, why are we tolerating this jackass? Right? <laughs> well, Alexander, though, must have been conflicted because it is his dad. So he's like, yeah, I'd love the job and I'd love to be czar, but I don't, I don't know if I want to kill my father. But I think this is where we need to be clear that when the conspirators approached Alexander, they did not necessarily tell the Grand Duke that, hey, we're going to kill your father. Mm -hmm. Because we do have instances in Russian history when um, senior figures are encouraged to join a monastery. Mm -hmm. So you can remove the czar and send him to a monastery. I'm going to tell him, hey, this is your retirement. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what Alexander understood. So it's not the question that he was unaware of the plotting. Oh, no, he was well aware of the plotting. <laughs> and he was aware that the conspirators were planning to put him on the throne. Mm -hmm. so he would have been quite excited about that. Now, the part where he really quibbles about it was, you know, whether that was a kind of cool thing to do to your dad. He understood it was mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. And he certainly was not in favor of doing any violence to his dad. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, as we'll see in a second, he was shocked by what happens to his dad. Mm -hmm. But what I find interesting is that, of course, he tacitly agrees to all of this. Right? He right. listens to the conspirators. He nods. He says nothing to his father. There is clear evidence that he was perfectly fine with the conspiracy to move forward as long as his father is not violently kind of harmed. Mm. So the conspiracy ultimately involves at least 60 officers. Wow. Maybe as many as 200 individuals mm -hmm. in, in, in total, but about 60 were at the core. Uh, and uh, in March of 1801, they decide to strike. And what I find interesting is that Paul has kind of premonition about this in fact more than that i'll tell you more than this the guy who is running the conspiracy you gotta love that part the guy <laughs> who's running the conspiracy is also kind of serving as the uh, uh counterintelligence chief for paul and paul hears the rumors of something is happening people are meeting right and they're kind of quietly talking right so one day he confronts this guy by the name of Panin, he confronts him and says, hey, what's going on? And Panin says, hey, uh, you know, your majesty, you're right. There is a conspiracy, mm. a conspiracy against you. But don't worry. I have it under control. I'm watching it. I just want to see how many people are actually involved in it. Don't worry. We'll swoop in and we'll take, you know, kind of arrest them. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a weird situation where on one hand, Paul kind of has a sense that there is something happening, but he's assured time and again by people that he trusts. Right. Running guy, that um, he will be he will be okay. That you know the intelligence will, you know, the security forces will will take care of it. Um, 
so just in case Paul decides uh, to move to a different place. So until now, he's been at the Royal Palace in, in St. Petersburg uh, in, 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 the, in early 1801. Mm -hmm. He finished, uh, well, not even completely finished, but still uh, good enough, right? Finished the construction of a new St. Michael's Castle. And that place is, is really, uh, you know, the, the uh, royal complex that is more like a fortress than a palace. Mm -hmm. Imposing walls, wide moats, drawbridges. This is kind of, to me, when I look at this um, uh, castle, it, it, it's a clear indication that Paul was you know, concerned about safety, but, uh, you know, thought that St. Michael's Castle was safe. Will, will, yeah. will be safe. Yeah. So he moves in there. But, um, um, you know, he trusts this Panin and Palin. Uh, and and Palin is particularly important because he's a governor general of St. Petersburg and mm -hmm. he's going to in charge of of, of, of security. Yeah. And Palin is the at the core of the conspiracy. And so on March twenty third, um, the or you know the Palin, Benningson, the Zubel brothers, and others lead the conspirators to the uh, castle. Uh, the men, uh, the, the kind of the rank and file, right, of the conspiracy were given alcohol to kind of uh, uh, overcome their trepidations and, and, and boost their morale. Right. Uh, so they rush into the palace, overpower the guards, and then get into the imperial bedroom, which famously is empty. And mm. so a, a, for a moment, there is a panic. Some uh, conspirators are panicking. They are, you know, some begin to bewail the fact that we've been betrayed. Mm -hmm. And then the story goes, one of them, uh, the, uh, usually credited with Benningson, Benningson says that the wine is poured and must be drunk. Right. That's it. Right? We made the, we, we, we rolled the die. We have accepted it. Yep. And so they says, he says, uh, let's search the place more thoroughly. And as they're searching the place, they see these two little feet sticking mm. beneath the screen in the corner of a room. Uh. And that's Paul. Who is hiding, waiting for a moment? Who uh, they drag the conspirators, drag Paul out. They demanded uh, he sign abdication document. He refused. He began mm -hmm. to berate the conspirators for daring to raise the hand on the emperor. Mm -hmm. uh, a scuffle takes place, and in this scuffle, Paul is beaten very, very, very badly. Mm -hmm. um, several men subdue him. Some bang him on his, uh, his head on the floor. Others threw a sash around his neck and strangle him. And then once he's he's gonna dying, the conspirators then mangle his body. Ugh. It is really a, a, a grisly, grisly scene. Yeah. Once this scene is kind of the dead bodies there and they realize what they have done, Nikolai Zubov and Palin then go downstairs in the same castle. They go downstairs to meet Grand Duke Alexander. Mm-hmm. He's, of course, awake. And so Zubov opens the door, goes into the room, and the, some of the witnesses say that his face is flushed. It's either the excitement of what just happened or the wine that he was drinking. But right. anyway, Zubov kind of comes in and tells Alex, it is all over. We, mm. we did it. He becomes czar at a very young age, 23, and he's going to have to learn this new role that it's just been thrust upon him, correct? 
He absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and do all of this, do all of this while the murder of his father hang around him. Adam Czartoryski famously says that Paul's murder loomed over Alexander like a vulture. Yeah. And wherever, whenever he went, wherever he did, yeah, the shadow of that of the events of March. Yeah, were with him. It's almost like a Macbeth, you know, Banquo type thing, where just that ghost is kind of following him around everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm actually in, the, in the, when I was writing Kutuzov book, I was I was kind of comparing it to Claudius in Hamlet, mm -hmm. uh, where, um, uh, you know, he, he the czar actually actually Chartoriski. Uh, uh, speaks also that uh, Alexander or, or frequently saw in, in his dreams and imagination Paul's mutilated, blood-stained body. Mm -hmm. To me, this is kind of uh, the, the, the very thing of, from Hamlet, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's just uh, interesting like that. Um, but yeah, let's let's jump into our protagonist now. And, and all right, he's got this great job. He's now czar of Russia. He wants to reform inefficient systems that he's inherited. And uh, somewhat like Napoleon, he's an enlightened leader, right? He's opening universities. He, he's encouraging literary and scientific work. Is he? Do you think he's making the right steps initially? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. He's, uh, you know, the first, I would say, three years of his reign is absolutely fascinating. Just like, you know, four years of Napoleon's rule, the consulate era, to me, is um, far more fascinating than what, he's, what he does later. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as, as you mentioned that Alexander is 23 years old. Yep. He's, by contemporary standards, very handsome, although mm -hmm. he was self-conscious of his receding hairline and he showed <laughs> kind of early signs of short-sightedness that will, will, be, you know, the, will be a bane of his existence for the rest of his life. Right. There is a, you know, he's very intelligent. He uh, well read. He, you said, you know, already mentioned that he spoke several languages. So, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think the fundamental problem that he faces as a ruler is that he is torn between two things, two really essential things. On one hand, he has the liberal upbringing, liberal education, but then on the other side is the harsh, very stark reality of being an autocrat of a massive conservative empire. Right. And so Alexander therefore has to navigate these two extremes, you know, these two poles very carefully. He starts by organizing a fascinating institution, sometimes called unofficial committee, sometimes called private committee. Mm -hmm. And it was him and a few of his friends, young men, yeah, like Viktor Kachubey, Nikolai Novosiltsev, Pavel Stroganov, Adam Czartoryski. Yeah. Young men who would kind of get together, sit down, kind of drink a, a, a wine or two and talk about vision that they had for Russia. And this right. is a remarkable vision. It's a vision that talked about profound reform of Russian state mm -hmm. to the degree of that they, they seriously discussed creating what was referred to as, quote, charter of the Russian people, or mm -hmm. what we will have called constitution. That constitutional document would have introduced profound changes in the state, mm -hmm. would have turned Russia into a constitutional monarchy, and moved it in a direction that would have been very different 
I right. mean, this is the, one of those prospects where you cannot but wonder how Russian history or European history would have turned out if if Alex acted on it. But he yeah. understands. And this and is I the think, thing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, especially with domestic reforms, you surround yourself with bright, young, energetic people who want to change things for the better. But I think where he comes into conflict is it's great to have your posse around you and you're working on those things. But in 1805, when you get involved into military affairs, which you don't really know anything about, and you ignore the older generals like Kutusov or Bennington or whoever, and you just listen to your own sycophants, that's when you get into trouble. <laughs> that, that, is a, that is a problem. Yeah. Um, that is a problem. And we'll, we'll, we'll see the, the um, outcome of it. But between 1801 and 1805, Alexander introduced substantive reforms. Mm -hmm. uh, not the least of them was the beginning of emancipation of serfs. Right. That is a fundamental initiative. Um, State-owned peasant uh, serfs are increasingly uh, emancipated. Yep. Um, he introduces uh, new universities. Uh, Alexander will create uh, ministries. Right. And these ministries will kind of consolidate the institutional, you know, the government power, and we'll have a ministry for foreign affairs, for finance, for commerce. And these are the ministries that continue to exist to the present day. So modern day Russian government ministries actually trace their origin. All right. September 1802. So, so a lasting institution. Yeah, that he developed. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. That's progress right there. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, the reform of the Senate, for example, in, in yet another uh, uh, kind of important initiative that he uh, uh, brings, or uh, the uh, permission in 1801, in late 1801, where he, the uh, Alexander uh, signs a decree allowing merchants and petty bourgeois to buy land and mm -hmm. own land. Again, very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are kind of important uh, um, incremental changes that Alexander is bringing. Okay. What he can do and what he realizes right away is that he can do uh, immediately the substantive changes like emancipating all serfs. Mm -hmm. Now that was too radical and was shelved and of course, as we know, will not be implemented until 1860s. Right. Nor, um, nor would he be able to kind of introduce that fully, that constitutional reform that he envisioned. He toyed with it. But after many discussions, uh, I think what what happens is that this, this autocratic streak in him uh, uh, prevailed. He understood that he needs that power to govern an empire of the size of, 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 of Russian state. Right. And of course, the third crucial element was the fact that in 1804, 1805, Alexander finds himself engaged increasingly in confrontation with Napoleon. Yeah. And it's hard to introduce substantive reforms at home when you're fighting a, a major war like the War of Third Coalition. Yeah, and let's, let's talk about that. Because I think, obviously, some people say, you know, maybe Alexander should not have gotten involved in that. You know, maybe British gold prompted him to get involved or, you know, supporting the Austrians. But I think a little bit of it was he was the second most powerful man probably in Europe after Napoleon. And maybe he just wanted to try his hand against this famous guy, this Napoleon. Do you think that was a little bit of it? Um, I would I would rank that at the bottom of my list, frankly. Um, okay. Uh, because there are 
several important issues that uh, dominate Russian thinking. And to this, the, the big, the, the for me, the biggest uh, issue that certainly uh, affects Russian thinking in 1804-1805 is the unremitting aggrandizement of French power in Central Europe. Right. Remember that many, uh, uh, you know, so in the 18th century, uh, Russian imperial house has uh, married or kind of became related to many of the German uh, uh, dynasties, ruling dynasties, right? Mm. So Alexander's wife is from Baden. His grandmother is from Anhalt-Zerbst, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, we can talk about kind of the, the relationships more, but nonetheless, you know, in, enough here to say, say that there are in, in vested interests Russia has in maintaining its interest in, in Germany. Yeah. Uh, but in 1801, starting in 1801, of course, Napoleon is is pushing through the, the uh, restructuring of Germany. Mm -hmm. That's the famous imperial recess which will completely reshape the future of Germany. Yep. Dozens of German states disappear. Yep. Over 3 million people will see themselves moving from one state, allegiance to one state to another. Yep. Right. Uh, Bavaria, Baden-Württemberg, they will be kind of double in size and, and become you know, far, far bigger than ever before. Mm -hmm. And then some smaller states will be affected. Now, all of this comes at the expense of Russian interest. Mm -hmm. As far as Russia is concerned, France is usurping uh, dominant position in Germany and is pushing yep. Russians out. Yeah, it's a territory grab, and they don't want to be last to the table. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. The second important issue that I would, uh, I would remind your listeners is what happened in the spring of 1804. Specifically, Napoleon sends troops into neighboring principality of Baden to mm -hmm. detain Louis Antoine Henri uh, de Bourbon, the Dungeon. Yep. And notice the principality, though. Right? Dungeon resided in principality of Baden. And uh, uh, where is Alexander's wife from? From Baden. Baden. Yeah. And what happens now is here the fact is that the French violated the sovereignty of a neighboring state, which happened to be related to the imperial house of Russia. Right. Detained a prince of royal blood moved back to Paris mm -hmm. and cold-bloodedly shot him. Right. So to, for, for Russia, this is a, a kind of a double whammy. Yeah, scandalous. Not yeah. a minor accident that they simply can ignore. Right. So moving just forward in the story, though, you know, in 1805, um, you know, we have the the war of the Third Coalition get really heated up. You know, Napoleon surrounds Mack at Ulm, and Alexander with Kutuzov is moving his army towards a confrontation with Napoleon at Austerlitz. You and I have talked about this particular battle. Um, you know, Kutuzov had a plan. The Austrians had a plan. Uh, Alexander had a plan. What, what, what happened there? Why was that battle a huge failure for the Russians and Austrians? And that's where my finger is pointed squarely at Alexander. <laughs> he, he's the culprit. Yeah, yeah. Um, he screwed it up and, and screwed it up royally um, because on the eve of Austerlitz, he receives advice from Kutuzov, from other senior officers, from Austrian officers mm -hmm. 
not to fight this battle. Mm -hmm. And time and again, Alexander overruled his own generals, listened to the Austrian advice, or at least some Austrian advice, and uh, and, and insisted on this battle. Um, we've talked about during Kutuzov's uh, uh, episode that the famous scene with Dolgorukov, yeah. Peter Dolgorukov, that young man who went to see uh, Napoleon, right? Yeah. He comes yeah. back and the impression that Napoleon is weak and scared. Yeah. And he meets with Tsar upon return. Right? And he tells Alexander that you have nothing to worry. Right. Napoleon trembled in fear in front of me, Dolgorukov <laughs> tells him, that we, it will suffice for our advance guard advance mm -hmm. guard to move mm -hmm. in and defeat him mm -hmm. and kutuzov is is listening to all of this and he kind of points out that dolgorukov is being played yeah duped and bolgorukov apparently sniggers back at him and tells him to you know old man shut up right and so kutuzov then snarls back at him saying what you know what are you laughing at young man Right. I love this kind of, you can imagine this growl, you know, him gnarling at it. He <laughs> says, maybe you think that I'm a coward. Yeah. My age and wounds, wounds will speak for themselves. Right. And Kutuzov storms out of this meeting. Yeah. Dolgorukov stays behind, looks at the Tsar, and tells him, if your majesty retreats, Napoleon will think of all of us as cowards. Mm -hmm. And then Alexander kind of gets startled by this looks at him and says cowards then it is better for us to die mm. and that i think that issue of maybe masculinity honor perception prestige certainly plays a role in it and and, and alexander once he's in the fields of austerlitz feels that he's capable of confronting napoleon as you said john he's surrounded by this group of psychophants psychophants who've barely mm -hmm. seen not seen even smelled bell, not to mention command anything. And and we we talked about it at the very beginning. You know, you, you gotta surround yourself with people who know what they're talking about. And I think he just he had too many nobles and friends and took a fans, like you said. But I think also at the beginning I said, you know, he learned a great deal over his career. And I think this failure is a great learning experience for Alexander. Exactly. And I think I think that memory stayed with him for quite some time mm -hmm. the memory of humiliation the memory of um feeling helpless like watching your army which yesterday you thought would be riding high and straight to the triumph but watching it being dismantled in such a drastic fashion right it's just a decisive fashion yeah uh, i think that memory stayed with him for a long long time yeah it is only in 1813, that Alexander will begin once again to assert himself and kind of place himself in, in decision-making, uh, affecting the military. But until then, he effectively will withdraw from military affairs and let the professionals do their thing. Right. And probably a good decision there. Uh, interestingly enough, though, after the loss at Austerlitz, you know, uh, Austria sues for peace, but Russia does not. They stay, they stay in the battle. And, um, you know, Prussia gets involved in 1806. And in 1807, you know, the Russian army has a, they at least battle to a stalemate at Eilau. But uh, later that year, they're decisively defeated by the French at Friedland. And the two sides agree to a peace agreement 
called the Treaty of Tilsit. Do you want to touch base on what happened at that? I mean, because it was the first time I believe Napoleon and Alexander ever met each other, and they were really fond of each other initially. Um, yes, uh, but uh, let me kind of mention one thing, and I think uh, that which is um, important to bear in mind when we when we talk about um, uh, Alexander. That in the wake of Austerlitz, mm-hmm. right, he blames the defeat in that war squarely on 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 others. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he takes no responsibility for it. Right. Uh, and then um, in 1806, 1807, I think he's, you know, he learns the lesson that he will not be present. That even when he brings the reinforcements uh, in the spring of 1807, he stays at Tilsit and doesn't go to the front line. Mm-hmm. But he lets the kind of generals do their thing. As you said, uh, Ela was a bloody stalemate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was all the hope that Russians might be able to turn it around until Bennington makes a blunder at Fridland. Uh, outcome is a complete rout. Right. So when the Alexander and Napoleon meet at Tilsit, Alexander is it, it has a weaker hand. Mm-hmm. So he has to use his personal charms, so to speak, to in order to get out of this conundrum with something to show for it. Right. And in that, in charming Napoleon, in showing, kind of playing Napoleon, I think Alexander is a is very skilled. Yeah. He succeeds. There's that great opening line. Uh, Alexander says to Napoleon, I hate the British as much as you do. And <laughs> that's right. Then we have and, a deal, right? <laughs> right. And Napoleon says, well, then we already are at peace. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think, yeah, his charm. And I think Napoleon was trying to charm Alexander as well. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. I think this, uh, this is a moment when you see Napoleon deliberately kind of willing to reach out to a defeated power, something that he's not done with Prussians or Austrians. And give Russians a very good deal. Mm-hmm. Tilsit is the moment when Europe is split into two spheres of influence: Western side, well, Central and Western side that will be French, and the Eastern side that will be Russian. Right. And Tilsit Napoleon, even after defeating Alexander, right, allows him, kind of gives him the green light to uh, expand the Russian borders into Finland, uh, accepts the Russian expansion into the Danubian principalities to a certain degree, but nonetheless, yeah. he also uh, kind of accepts the Russian uh, claims to Caucasus, mm-hmm. where right, R- Russia already took over my homeland in 1801. Alexander mm-hmm. signed the manifesto annexing Georgian, Prince, uh, Georgian kingdom. Right. Well, in 1807, it tells it, Napoleon recognizes Russian aggrandizement in Caucasus. Do you think initially they both meant to honor it or were they just biding their time to rebuild their armies? I think it all depends on on particular elements of it because the treaty, I think, was meaningful to both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that right after the treaty, Russian uh, Alexander uh, sanctioned the invasion of Finland and, and the war against Sweden. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also know that the treaty helped Russians to kind of try to consolidate their presence in Caucasus and, 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 and that, the Nubian Peninsula. Right. But what the biggest stumbling block, I think, in, in the relationship um, uh, was the question of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Because uh, Tilsit, especially secret uh, provisions, spoke about possibility of partitioning it. And partitioning uh, would have been 
exactly what the Russians wanted for quite some time. Right. But uh, Napoleon, um, in later years, was very apprehensive about that. Yeah. And and, and I think that all, all kind of pissed off uh, Alexander, since the promise was uh, uh, made at Tilsit. And this uh, next big issue, uh, the one that is really uh, running like a red line through all of uh, all of relations, is of uh, Poland. Ah. Poland was uh, destroyed by Russia in in three partitions between 1772 and 1795. Yeah. Then Napoleon restored the kernel of Polish sovereignty, right, at the Duchy of Warsaw. Yep. In 1807-1808, and that creates the uh, a kind of fear in Russia that Napoleon might encourage uh, Polish uh, uh, restoration. And if that happens, then Russia has to forsake significant territories yeah. to, the Pol to the revived Polish state. And so throughout 1809, 10, 11, one of the biggest issues of debate between Russians and French is the future of Poland. Yeah. I think also the adherence to Napoleon's continental system was something Alexander probably initially tried to do, but I think it was too hurtful to his economy. Uh, here, I think um, I would kind of flip the sides because you're right that continental system um, uh, affected uh, adversely Russian economy. Mm -hmm. um, but what I kind of struggle to um, to justify is Napoleon's insistence on maintaining strict blockade when he himself in 1811 starts issuing licenses that allow French, for example, uh, uh, commercial interests to import uh, British produce. Mm -hmm. So he's relaxing continental system when it comes to French controlled territory, right. but doubling down on Russians protecting their kind of their own economic interests. Right. Um, right. And, and I think that's where Napoleon should have been more practical about dealing with Russia. So in 1812, Napoleon finally invades Russia, captures Smolensk, and then more shockingly, Moscow. Do you think the Tsar ever thought about making a peace accord with Napoleon? The short answer is no. And I think this decision that Napoleon makes to go into Russia is one of the fundamental mistakes he makes. Um, actually, I would say the most important, the most crucial mistake that he makes. Um, and part of this mistake is him underestimating, really underappreciating Alexander's character and resolve. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it shows when he gets to Moscow, right, that underestimation again plays out again because Napoleon keeps sending messages uh, to St. Petersburg, to Alex, asking to negotiate, but he should have known better, mm -hmm. um, both... Uh, from the conversation with the Colin Court, the, his ambassador to St. Petersburg, and mm -hmm. to the other people who knew Alexander, that there was no prospect for peace. Alexander told him repeatedly on the eve of the war that if this war begins, it will be the war that will last until one of the sides falls. Mm -hmm. And okay. of course, he famously promises that he will not negotiate or accept any conditions as long as a single soldier, French soldier, was on the Russian soil and that he would be ready to retreat all the way to Kamchatka and keep fighting 
rather than to accept any uh, conditions. Right. And Alexander, it's not just about his character. It, 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 that is, of course, part of the Russian you know, reasoning of it. You know, it he, he's genuinely determined to fight. But it's also that he is in, in, in a situation when I don't think he had another choice, really. Mm -hmm. In my mind, and I have very little doubt in this, and again, you're welcome to disagree, but <laughs> in my mind, very little doubt that Alexander would have shared the fate of his father. Uh, so and I'm sure he knew that he knew that. So right. it's, it's both his internal kind of determination to fight on, but also the wider situation in which there is a resolve uh, on, on the part of the Russian populace. Certainly, the resolve on the part of the Russian elite to keep fighting. Um, and and so those um, overtures, those peaceful uh, the peace requests that Napoleon says are rebuffed, and the war continues. Uh, throughout 1812, leading to ultimately, as we all know, to the great catastrophe of the Grand Armée yeah. um, that, that is forced to leave Russia with, with barely one-tenth of, of, of its strength. I have one more question, though, about the invasion. You know, obviously, in 1805, Alexander's relationships with his generals were complicated at best. In 1812, was he more, had he learned, like, all right, maybe I should let the generals handle it. I don't need to be at the front. Was he more... Do you think he was more, I guess, educated by that point in his relationship with his generals? I think the uh, the answer uh, is not as clear cut as we may wish it. Um, so to start with, when the war began, Alexander was with the army, and mm -hmm. under the under the Russian military statute, he effectively could exercise the supreme command. Right, and certainly his presence hampered the uh, the the decisions of of the. Uh, the minister of war and the commander of the biggest Russian army, uh, Mikhail Barclay de Tolly. Uh, and Alexander stays with that army uh, for a couple of weeks until he's, he's kind of hinted, he's told that, hey, you need to leave. Mm -hmm. That in order for the, you know, the, the military men to do their thing, they can't have you here around because your presence is, 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 uh, is inconvenience. And so mm -hmm. he smartly leaves. I mm -hmm. think that's what I think big decision on his part to to say, you know, to resist the temptation of taking charge and and leave and allow Barclay de Tolly to implement what was a, a, a very unpopular but a very uh, in, kind of rational and, and effective strategy of, of, of retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, then we, of course, know that that strategy resulted in Barclay de Tolly's removal right. and the appointment of, of Kutuzov. And once right. again, I think um, Alexander resists that temptation of, of getting involved, where when he uh, is, appoints Kutuzov, he gives him not simply the command of an, an army, but uh, he appoints him as the supreme commander of all Russian forces. So centralize yeah. the authority in the hands of a capable, yeah. if, uh, experienced general, and then gives him a wide latitude to pursue operations, decisions, Right, that will uh, uh, let Russia win, so that Kutuzov doesn't doesn't have to uh, constantly check with Alexander for permission. Right. Yeah. All that, uh, John, kind of changes once it becomes clear that Napoleon has been defeated in Russia. He's been uh, ousted. Once the Russians reach the imperial borderland, Kutuzov and his people are kind of shuffled aside. And Alexander increasingly kind of takes the lead role uh, in, uh, in the army.
Right. And yeah, um, let's talk about that. By 1813, Napoleon has been evicted from Russia, and the Tsar is the leading force in uniting the Allies. You know, Kutuzov dies in 1813, so you're right, Alexander's kind of not only, you know, the commander-in-chief, but he's leading at the front again. Do you believe he was his influence was the ultimate factor in Napoleon's downfall in 1814? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, Alexander is a, is a prime architect of, of the coalition he's the driving force behind it um uh, of course he would he would have been unable to achieve that triumph without the close uh, collaboration or cooperation with austrians and prussians mm-hmm. but at the key moments like in the in the late spring of 1813 when the uh, the coalition suffered made two major defeats right yep alexander insist on 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 fighting on Mm -hmm. Uh, and then later on right uh, it's the russian army that that represents the bulk of the troops that are confronting uh napoleon time and again uh and and so i think he is key um ultimately to to the the transformation that will take place in in europe in 1813 1814 yeah and i think um coalition building is something he's pretty good at you know not only does he bring former Marshal Bernadotte onto his team, but he also brings General Moreau, who was a rival of Napoleon. He brings aboard uh, Jomini, who was a chief of staff of Ney. So he's bringing like really talented advisors to his side in this, in this point. He does. And I think it's maybe it's maybe, uh, let me flip the coin. Maybe it's Napoleon who is so, so kind of pissing off people. Right? <laughs> true. And making Alexander's job easy. True, true. That's a good point. Because uh, one of the things you cannot but wonder is uh, what would have happened, right, if Napoleon had listened to Metternich during the mm-hmm. conversation he was having with him in the summer of 1813. Uh, and when he was offered what I think were rather sensible uh, offers. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, offers that would have resulted in a significant reduction of uh, French imperial presence in Europe. Um, but that what happens when you <laughs> lose a war, <laughs> yeah, as yeah. spectacularly as he did in, in Russia. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, Napoleon had actually time and again had an opportunity to to strike the a deal, um, mm-hmm. either separate deal with the Austrians or a, a more comprehensive deal with with the Allies that might have played it out in his favor. But as it was, Alexander. Alexander um, uh, I think was able to to keep the coalition together um, with Metternich, with uh, uh, Fred, uh, King Frederick uh, William uh, 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 Frederick of William Russia. of yeah. Prussia, uh, and and push it to the um, triumphant conclusion. Right, Napoleon is defeated at Leipzig, yep. which to me is the most important battle in in the second second half of of the imperial era. Yeah, far more important than Waterloo. Uh, with you know, and I say that with apologies to my British friend. Uh, it's the Leipzig that really decides the future, uh, the destiny of Europe, uh, rather than Waterloo. There, um, so yeah, Napoleon advocates in April 1814, and there's a, a quote I want to get to because I think it really speaks to the enlightened view of Alexander. Um, he could have been very harsh on the French, especially after the destruction of Moscow and Smolensk. Um, but he takes a more liberal view, especially when he walks into Paris. He, uh, the quote is, I do not come as an enemy. I come to bring you peace and commerce, end quote. 
The Parisians cheered. One Frenchman replied, we've been waiting for you for a long time. And Alex replied, if I didn't come sooner, it is the bravery of the French troops that is to blame. <laughs> yeah, you gotta love it. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, he, I mean, he could have. I mean, by the time of the Congress of Vienna and Napoleon's defeat, he's the most powerful sovereign in Europe, perhaps the world. Why is he not harsh on the French? Do you think? Uh, part of it is a is a calculation. It's a, it's a cold calculation. He he's uh, like Napoleon. He's a very a very good kind of political operative. He understands what how to talk kind of to pull the strings on 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 the french hearts and kind of how to win the french hearts and minds mm-hmm. uh he's every kind of step every decision he makes in in march and april of 1814 designed to kind of calculate uh, kind of cultivate that image of him as the benevolent conqueror and he's quite successful at this um uh, um you know the russian the russian troops in in france and, and in paris uh, all instructed to behave well, not not to commit any transgressions, and you know I've, I've written on the Russian presence in Paris, and it's it's a meeting of two very you know kind of unique cultures and different ways of doing things, and certainly mm-hmm. for many Russian soldiers and officers, uh, this is the first time ever they've been this far mm-hmm. outside Russia, so this is encountering uh, a, a unique kind of uh, uh, for them it's a unique cultural. Um, experience as well right and, and alex um now that he's a, a victorious right now that he's riding at the top of the world certainly is keen on on maintaining that perception of him as as you said the most powerful man in europe i'm not sure about the world <laughs> the british might have might take an issue with that <laughs> yeah yeah good point good point but yeah um, you're right yeah, in uh, europe, uh, sure. uh, there is also an interesting uh aspect to it and, and that is this is a period when Alexander also undergoes this religious awakening. Mm-hmm. We've talked about his early kind of liberal uh, upbringing, and 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 um, I think the liberalism of his early days is is increasingly forgotten now. And and mm-hmm. what I mean by this is that um, uh, in eighteen fourteen fifteen, this in this period, he um, he is uh, encountering. Um, what we call mystic pietism, cultivating this vision that he was he didn't win just because of the sacrifice of his people, sacrifice that other nations made, but rather because he was chosen by God mm-hmm. to bring down the revolution incarnate. Like, like it, was, it was God's will. Exactly. And I think that religious messianism becomes an important element in, in Alexander's kind of uh, worldview. That yeah. Yeah. This was a part of a larger plan. Um, yeah. Let, let, let's talk about that. Post-1815, after Napoleon's second abdication, he becomes increasingly suspicious of those around him. He's more withdrawn and more religious. Is that is he worried about assassination or is he just he just wants to, you know, he's been basically on campaign for, gosh, how many years fighting the French uh, in, in other countries as well? Is it just like you said he's more religious, or why does he kind of become more withdrawn in his later years? I do want to, uh, before we, uh, we talk about, that, I do want to point out the the fact that um, Alex was you know kind of talking about his benevolence. Um, uh, yeah. The decision to send uh, Napoleon to the island of Elba is largely made at his behest. So mm. for whether it was a smart decision or not, I think it it it, it um, reflected his view that Napoleon, um, you know, he, that he still remain uh, maintained certain. D- 
degree certain level of respect for Napoleon, grudging, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, of yeah. course, it backfired, right? <laughs> Spectacularly. Yeah. But, no, I, I think he had great respect. I remember uh, when Marshal Odeno got his baton, I know Alex sent him a letter of congratulation. So I, mm -hmm. I think, he, think he had great respect for the entire uh, French army. Yes, uh, I, I think so. Um, and now that Napoleon is defeated and he's been surrendered, he's surrendered to the British, and it's the British who make a decision to exile him to the far, far away island. Mm -hmm. um, Alex it plays a, a crucial role in the Congress of, of, of Vienna. Mm -hmm. And here we see him as a, uh, as a pragmatic politician, as a diplomat, as a uh, 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 head of the state that is keen on maximizing its, pro its, its advantages and benefits. And ultimately, Alexander is able to get away with most of what he wanted. Mm -hmm. um, and, and look how well he played his cards in that through relationship with Napoleon, he was able to acquire Finland, right? The mm -hmm. Treaty of Tilsit, Treaty of Erfurt. Uh, and that acquisition was confirmed at the Congress of Vienna. So Finland remains in the Russian Empire until the collapse of the Russian Empire in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, at Congress of Vienna, Alexander was able to gain Poland. And of course, it's Congress of Vienna uh, also approved Russian acquisition of Bessarabia from the Turks and yeah. the Russian uh, conquests in, in Caucasus. So ultimately, if you look in, in terms of territory, Russia came out uh, the best out of, of out of Napoleonic uh, uh, powers. Um, yeah. Powers engaged in Napoleonic wars. And I don't think he gets enough credit for his diplomatic skills. I mean, you're matching wits with some of the greatest diplomats of all time. Metternich, Talleyrand, um, the British, I know, had diplomats there. So it was... It, it wasn't an easy thing to do, and I think he should get more credit for his diplomatic skills. Yes, um, uh, to, to a degree. I think you, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, you're right that uh, Russian diplomats and Alexander is well advised by a, a, a group of capable, experienced diplomats. Not the least of them is, is Karl Nestor Rode, who is unheralded, usually kind of shoved into the corner of historical discussion, but I, I want to shout out to him. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, you know, these, these advisors do help him shape uh, uh, the European future, certainly uh, a Russian future, by by insisting on, on concessions to Russia. And ultimately, as I said, they got most of what they wanted. Okay. Well, let's wrap up then. I know there's a 10-year period from 1815 to his death in 1825 that I want to talk about. But I also want to talk about kind of the mystery behind his death in 1825. So can we... Can we kind of dive into that for a little bit? Absolutely. And I think that uh, post-1815 period is one of the most interesting and complex periods uh, uh, as far as Alexander is concerned. He remained uh, 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 in charge of the Russian Empire for another 10 years. But I think these last years are full of disillusionment and disenchantment, which is a startling thing to say about a guy who just defeated Napoleon. Yeah, uh, who in 1815 is at the top of the world, and but you wonder, like he, he just witnessed all that death and destruction for gosh, ten years, and you know his country and his army is probably ravaged somewhat. Um, so maybe that's why I, I, I don't know. Maybe he he was just kind of he found religion as like you said it was God's will, but maybe he's just trying to make sense of it all. Like why did I have to go through all that? Um, to me, in, in the kind of the uh, 
the comp kind of the understanding I have gained from reading the contemporary writings is that um, the victory over Napoleon, this this really de uh, defining experience for so many people, um, have left you know it had left a, an imprint on on Tsar's mentality. Mm -hmm. We already talked that he was enthralled by religious mysticism, um, but part of that religious mysticism was um, also his kind of transformation from a reform-minded liberal figure to a more conservative figure. Mm -hmm. So in the post-1815 period, now that this revolution incarnate is defeated, Alexander actually seeks to uphold conservative order. And the conservative order for him is the order that is based on the Christian ideals. Mm -hmm. Alexander, Alexander in, in this post-1815 period, becomes everything that as a young man he loathed, mm -hmm. which I mean that's the probably the worst the worst thing you can experience, right? Yeah. Um, so in in and we see him doubling down on these conservative uh, uh, tendencies to such a degree that by 1820s there is a open vociferous criticism of him, and one of his close uh, companions, um, uh, Radion Kashelev, famously uh, notes that everyone, old men, middle-aged men, young, and he says actually especially young, everyone condemned Alexander and for the conservative policies that he pursued. Mm -hmm. Part Let's... of it is the fact that when Alexander led those Russian armies all the way to France, mm -hmm. as, as we've mentioned, he in exposed thousands of Russian officers. And I'm not talking about the kind of rank and file, but it's the officers, the uh, drawn from the elite, he exposed these thousands of officers to a new way of life. He let mm -hmm. them see how people live in Germany, how they live in France. And I just translated them a memoir of one of these officers. Uh, he, you can, you can see him kind of marveling when he's in Germany. Mm -hmm. How is it that these Germans live so much better than us? Mm -hmm. How is it? I mean, there is a passage where he says. German peasant lives better than a Russian gentleman. Huh. Yeah, How is it right? I can imagine when they got to Paris, their minds were probably blown. They're like, oh exactly, right? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we know that quite a few Russian uh, actually soldiers deliberately stayed behind <laughs> because they prefer <laughs> to live yeah. in France. Yeah, hard to blame them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a beautiful city. And when this young man, these officers returned back, uh, they became engaged in in secret societies. Mm -hmm. liberal secret societies that were discussing ways they can improve life in, in Russia. Mm -hmm. And for them, increasingly, the answer is to embrace these liberal reforms, kind of emancipation, change. Some of it would be not unlike the one that France went through. Right. But of course, in a conservative society like Russia, this orders, uh, these secret societies could not openly operate. And so we have kind of this brewing of, of, of intellectual turmoil with, within Russia that takes place 10 years. Okay. And so ultimately, I think by the time Alexander actually dies in 1825, when he looks around, right, I think he sees a reality that is in direct contrast to the early aspirations that he had as a young man. Okay. Well, let's talk about that just to wrap up. I know he passes in 1825. 
Can you talk to us about the mystery behind his death? I, I know there was conspiracy theories that maybe he didn't die. He was like a monk in a monastery. It, it, <laughs> you, you yeah, know, that's my, that's the, when I talk to my students, that's usually the place where their minds are blown. So the official story is that uh, in 1825, uh, Alexander decided to travel to a small town on the Azov Sea to, uh, called Taganrog. And that, you know, he was not kind of feeling well. Um, uh, and, you know, he decided to go. And then while in Taganrog, he uh, contracted um, disease, usually claimed to be a typhus, and effectively died um, kind of within a week, so very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then his body was placed, because Taganrog is on the Azov Sea and Moscow, you know, not just Moscow, St. Petersburg is over a thousand miles to the north. They put him, put his body in a sealed coffin and transported back uh, to, the, uh, to the capital. Uh, and that would have been uh, essentially it, except uh, there are some issues um, with this official storyline. So to start with, uh, we know that later on, much, much later on, um, when, when the Bolsheviks took over in 1917, they uh, one of the uh, first things they did is they went through the imperial tombs, opening them up to strip the bodies of uh, their possessions. The, you know, any any jewels, any any uh, kind of rings that that they had. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as we can say, uh, certainly uh, uh, the the report of, from that opening ceremony was that when they opened Alexander's tomb, that it was empty. So that it by itself is is, is a big problem, right? Where yeah. And I'd also like to point out his official age of death. He was only 47. He's a young guy. He's very young, yeah, considering that I'm 45. Yeah. <laughs> I would say he is very young. Yeah. <laughs> Another, of course, issue is that after um, after Alexander's uh, passing in 1825, shortly thereafter, um, we know that uh, there was the uh, a hermit, not necessarily a monk, but a, a hermit that appeared, uh, Fyodor Kuzmich who traveled around um, Russian countryside and kind of lived a, 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 the life of a, of a wandering hermit. Mm -hmm. Now, because in Russia, in, in Russia the, uh, the movement of the population was tightly controlled, hermit was repeatedly detained and, and interrogated. On, on several occasions, he was actually punished with the... Uh, uh, actually, he was whipped mm -hmm. for... for for you know, for the transgression, and but during these detentions, they discovered that he was in in possession of items with Alexander's personal insignia, mm -hmm. right? So, how could a, a humble, poor, her, wandering hermit right. who has nothing but just a few possessions have possession, personal possessions of the emperor himself? Uh, the surviving evidence suggests that this hermit spoke uh, fluent French, had knowledge of German and other languages, that mm. he showed uh, remarkable knowledge of, uh, of the royal court. Uh, uh, and that uh, caused some to question his identity, right? Right. We also know that later on in, in 1840s, uh, I think 1830s, um, Members of the uh, Russian imperial family traveled 
east to visit this hermit in, in a remote monastery. Mm -hmm. Again, why would a member of the family travel that far to visit a, a, a nobody, right? Right. And within the Romanov family, by the time we get to Nicholas II, right, there was this understanding that Alexander indeed faked his death and, and uh, kind of spent the remaining few years of his life in, in atoning for his past transgressions. Some of it would have been atoning for his father's murder. Some of it will be kind of living the life of that religious mysticism that was so appealing to him uh, in, 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 the, in the aftermath of defeating Napoleon. But Fyodor Kuzmich, this hermit, had a long life. Uh, mm. He dies in January of 1864. So that, that is incredible. Especially what is interesting is that he was actually canonized later mm. on by the Russian Orthodox Church. So right before the um, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Putin's government uh, announced that it intends to open the tomb of Fyodor Kuzmich to do a DNA testing. Mm. They haven't done it yet, but I cannot wait for that moment when they do, because if it's proven that this is Alexander, I mean, this would be one of those remarkable, yeah. remarkable discoveries. That's almost like the Marshall Ney escaping to America uh, a theory. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So do you think like a 10 percent chance? Uh, 40 I, chance? Yes, I, I certainly I have my fingers crossed. I think so. We'll have to do a follow up when we find the DNA. Results. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend, for joining us and always a pleasure. And yeah, I, I learned a lot. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much.